Greetings programs and welcome back to the awesome Friday podcast podcast. <laughs> hey, hey, welcome to hey, the podcast. Welcome to the podcast. We're going to talk about the... two things, whatever. <laughs> yeah, wow. A more professional duo would uh, re-record that, but I'm not going to. No, why would yeah. you take that? That's going to be the best bit of the whole show. <laughs> uh we're back to talk about two new things like we always do my name is matthew and with me is simon and in a stunning reversal of fortune i'm feeling better and he's sick oh my God. hello <laughs> yes I, now even though we haven't seen each other physically for what feels like an eternity um i i, I now have the cold it's because school's back and my last weekend my both my kids came home with a cold in fact my daughter stayed home with it on monday but that was probably more due to a COVID vaccine reaction. And they shrugged a cold off in a day because they have young, perfect immune systems. And then on Thursday, my throat basically turned into fire and then it's turned into this head cold. And the last two COVID tests have all said, no, not COVID, it's just a cold. Welcome back to cold. And it really yeah. annoys me that you can be the most careful person in the world, but the moment your kids go to school, like, forget forget about it it's um you're not avoiding anything so no kids are a perfect delivery vehicle for germs and viruses and class and that is as well. that is perfect. backed up by science i'm pretty sure people talk about cruises being a petri dish man classrooms are the perfect petri dish and then they just bring that all home and because they're young and perfect they just shrug it off oh yeah this cold i went to sleep with it and now it's gone and this is my like third day of it. Brilliant, nice. but uh, that's why I'm a little uh, a little Barry White today. But uh, I'm okay. I watched some watched some good stuff this week. Yeah, um, some good stuff. Well, I watched <laughs> um, Bake Off has restarted, and Strictly Come Dancing has restarted, and the new season of Ghosts. This is the British TV update, by the way. The new season of Ghosts <laughs> has just dro- dropped. Uh, so my family are very happy. She-Hulk continues to just be just She-Hulk lovely. Wonderful. I saw, so I don't post on TikTok really, but I do scroll TikTok because that's what you do these days. And I saw this one guy who pops up in my feed every once in a while and he's just having like a meltdown about it, about She-Hulk, about how it's garbage and terrible and he's only watching it because Daredevil's going to show up at some point. And like, if I was making TikToks, this is where I would be like, oh, honey, why are you getting so emotional? Like, you got to calm down and present your your argument rationally or no one's going to take you seriously. You know? <laughs> I, I'm just very amused at the so-called fans of comic book style are now talking about Frank Miller because they are not talking actually what it means to put a comic book on the screen because She-Hulk is just the most perfect comic realization that i've seen in ages it's not trying to be a dark gritty thing it is a well, series of moving panels and fourth wall breaking that is just delicious and i just want to marry i'm, I'm going to mispronounce her name but i want her tatiana masali maslani maslani as my bestest friend i just want her in my circle and i want to feed her tea and toast that's how important she is to me right now <laughs> yeah it, it never ceases to amaze me that people who claim to be comic book fans, bros who claim to be comic book fans, the more comic booky things like the MCU get, which is to say, silly and fun and disconnected, the less they seem to like it. And like, that's even aside from the whole like, 
misogyny and conversation that like people have been whining about the MCU being too interdependent for ages. And now that it's finally not that interdependent, they're like, there's no Easter eggs for me anymore. It's like, well, like, yeah, come on, man. I've got, I've got a, I got a question for you. Cause when I was young, <clears throat> sorry, well, I'm 45. So when I was growing up eons ago and uh, reading, I read a lot of comic books and they're all one. Sh- they were mostly one shots. Like you would get Spider Man and Hobgoblin like fighting in a department store, and then you get Spider Man saving an ice cream owner, for, uh, and Mary Jane's getting ice cream. Like completely disconnected, mm-hmm. but connected by the same character. And when did it change to being? It had to be a series. It had to be connected. Is it like the death of Superman? Is that when no. it really changed? It, but what was so first that off, thing that did that? First off, it didn't. Uh, most comic books are still relatively self-contained. Um, and then every year or so, this like Marvel is stick to Marvel just because this is their pattern. Like most of the series are relatively self-contained. And then every year or so they have one big event that connects everything that every character shows up in, but most characters, individual comics are not that connected, you know, like people show up in them, like your favorite supporting characters show up in them, but um, like, it's not like, it's not like every comic in the world ties into the big event that happens every year. I mean, that does happen a little bit, but it's not like that's the main thrust of things. And if the MCU is headed to a structure where things are relatively disconnected, except for when they come together for whatever the big event is, I'm on board with that because I'm really enjoying as much as I, I am connecting with She-Hulk and I didn't connect with Moon Knight, for example, like I'm just, I'm just really enjoying how different everything is like the one thing the other big complaint about the mcu for a long time has been how samey it is and they're not that samey anymore like the shows have radically different tones uh and radically different storytelling um intents and i'm very much enjoying it and i'm tired of grim dark bs i just want light-hearted things like she hulk i would be very interested to see to nip like 10 years into the future and see what um, Discovery Warner's DC plan is now. Like, which way are they going to go with... (laughs) The stupid thing is, when you think about what they're sitting on, like, how hard is it to make a Superman film? Seriously. It's not hard hard to How hard is it to make a film with that classic character that many, many people get, seemingly people not involved with the making of Superman understand how to make a good Superman movie. They've made good Superman movies in the past. They've made bad ones. You can compare those and see very, very clearly what works for Superman. How hard is it to make a good Superman movie? And I'm, I'm really, really curious. Uh, once they get whoever they hire as their overarching, they're Kevin Feige because one guy's already turned them down. Like who, whoever they get, where, where are they going to steer it? And their only success, their biggest success at the moment, is Matt Reeves' Batman universe. So I wonder if that's going to expand more. I'm very curious about the Joker sequel. I'd be curious, not like I'm excited to see it, but curious to see what tone it takes and where it goes. So, in a way, I... I, I mean, the I Joker huge... sequel is meant to be a musical, so... Yeah, yeah. Bring I, it on, I, as far as I'm I really concerned. Liked, I really liked DC. I had no DC Marvel Allegiance growing up. I loved all the characters, and it's... I would love to see good DC movies. I love Birds of Prey, for example. Why they haven't thrown a, a truck of money at Kathy Yen 
and just Yikati Yan or Yan? Yan. Uh, Yan, like to take over that. Because if you think about all the stuff that DC that's kind of working, the Suicide Squad kind of neon quippy stuff that James Gunn's getting all the credit for, like she really originated a lot of that, certainly visually and totally in Birds of Prey. And she, they should get her on board as well. Well, and it's, I don't think I don't think it's a coincidence that DC started seeing more success, at least critically, and I think financially as well, when they did start just letting people make the movies they wanted to make instead of trying to like continue the Snyderverse, which I don't want to debate, but like I don't think it's a coincidence that like Shazam being effectively a family film and Aquaman being a huge neon colored soap opera oh, i love Aquaman you know movie. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a i don't think it's a coincidence that those movies adopting varying tones and the voice of their filmmakers led to more success and i you know that was what i was always sort of hoping for once they started doing it that they would keep doing that because the complaint that marvel stuff is all quite samey because they have one central production person and one you know, in-house style and and second unit and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a legitimate complaint. Um, and they do were still like, as much as I'm saying that the, the shows have varying tones and stuff, they still are, they're still all very recognizably Marvel. And mm-hmm. I sort of, I really enjoyed that. Or what am I trying to say? I think it was a good plan for DC to go in the other direction and just mm-hmm. make, you know, one-off comic book movies and have them occasionally have someone show up in the other and adopt that mm. film's tone, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I, I wish they would keep doing that. Yeah. But, you know, they're basically gutting themselves right now, so yes. we'll see. And that does kind of connect with one of the two things we're talking about this week. In sort terms of. of finding its own voice to tell its own story. Sort of. We're going to come back to that, though, because we're going to talk about that thing second. Because yeah. we have two things to talk about this week. And we like to end on the one that we both liked. So let's <laughs> let's talk about the Spoiler. one. Let's uh, let's talk about the other one. So this week we are going to talk first about the new uh, about to be released on Netflix film by Andrew Dominic and starring and Anna de Armas Blonde, which is a fictionalized account of the life of Marilyn Monroe. And I didn't like this movie, so I'm going to let Simon wow, straight with the off. Oh yeah, I'm just going to go right there. Um, uh, the, uh, we'll talk about the review split uh, in a minute, but uh, mm-hmm. why don't you give us the quick rundown on what Blonde is in like so, 10% more detail than I already did, because it is just so, her life story. Blonde, well, it's interesting because it's kind of not. That's the interesting thing about this. Blonde is the um, milestones, the, the famous events of Marilyn Monroe's life that are known and then it connects the dots with fiction. And apparently the book that it's based on tried to uh, replicate or, or use the American uh, mythic story structure to kind of tell a largely fictional story of... The, oh, hello. Of the cute... Of the, of the cute... Of the true story of Marilyn Monroe's life. And, and so I, I think you've got to be careful with this movie. You've got to, I think you need to know before you go in that it is a fictionalized dot to dot of fact. And um, it's, 
It's first of all, first off, off the very top, this is a three-hour movie. Doesn't need to be as a conversation we'll have a little bit later. It is a technical masterpiece. It uh, is yeah. a technical masterpiece. The choreography, the lighting, the direction, the editing, and for the most part, the acting is a absolute technical masterpiece. And uh, th- there's some very brave choices taken with the direction. And th- there's lots of stage technique here. There's lots of forced perspective camera work. So I was just absolutely enthralled with how this thing was shot. Um, oh, you said, okay, you meant cinematography. You said choreography, and I'm like, that too. Oh, are you are, are going to talk about I the mean, cinematography? Sorry, I've had three different drugs to, to combat my, so I have a voice to talk today. I mean cinematography, thank you. Yeah. The director of photography in this should get an Oscar because the uh, it, it's interesting. It's, uh, our mutual friend turns out, did some work with him and described him as loving light. And that kind of makes sense when you watch this um, because the, everything is lit so beautifully and it, and there's lots of different styles as well as it moves through the decades, the film style and quality and tone changes. Uh, It's really from a, if you love filmmaking, this is a movie you should watch. Um, Yeah. I I mean, I I will stipulate to all of the technical things that you're talking about. It is beautifully shot. It is, every scene is wonderfully composed. It's beautifully lit. I really, I, I appreciate the changes in aspect ratio and, and film grain and lighting and yeah, lots of st- really, really stagey choices in terms of both the way things are blocked and composed and acted. <coughs> and uh, Ana de Armas, I, you know, I won't, I won't begrudge her her Oscar win this year. Because think, she'll, think she'll get it? I think she'll be nominated for sure. She's playing a Hollywood icon who is dead. That is a surefire way to get an Oscar <laughs> nomination. Uh, you know, that there's, there's yeah. a few things you can do as an actor to get an Oscar nomination. And playing a deceased Hollywood icon in a fictionalized version of their life is a good way to get that nomination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think the problem, the two sides of the coin here is that the tone of this movie is her, the misery of how she's treated in her life. And there's no, there's no um, disputing over she was treated terribly like, I mean, if you look what went into Judy Garland's like career, I mean, it was the way women stars were treated at that time was um, like shocking and this is this these are all stuff we we've learned through multiple different outlets the problem for me is that the tone of the film is pure misery right it's a miserable tone and Ada Armas is brilliant she's like sensational in her depiction of this american icon almost like 90% of the time obfuscating her natural very latin inspired um enhanced accent and she is brilliant and she lays herself completely bare figuratively and literally for the uh the misery that this film goes through but the the other thing is that it's a misery for her and one of the main points of this movie is how terrible she is over sexualized by the male glare in that time. And it makes that point by over-sexualizing the main character and forcing us to be complicit through the male glare. Like a lot of this movie is through the eyes of the men who 
turn her into this piece of meat. And and it, through the eyes of the director as well, who turns her well, into a piece of meat. Well, I mean, this I is say. well, yeah, this is his decision to do that to make us complicit in that. For me, it worked because I don't think you can tell a story about oversexualization without oversexualization. Like the point is the point, I think, and the making us. It felt a little bit like Wolf of Wall Street, right? You've got to be complicit with it to realize how terrible you feel about it. Like, I came out of this movie feeling just... I mean, I said to you beforehand, I watched the end of the movie, then I had a nap, and I just woke up feeling like shit because this, this, there is no point of this movie where she's happy purely, right? It's a three-hour movie, and there's no, like... Even when she's happy, she's miserable. There's something falling apart. There's another man lined up to absolutely ruin her life. And, of course, this is true, but I was thinking a lot about Goodfellas, actually. How in Goodfellas, the Ray Liotta's character is allowed to have moments of happiness, which are then brought down and shattered to that sort of circular ending that we see at the beginning. And... I would have been more interested in this movie if it hadn't been three hours of brutal misery. In fact, some parts of this movie that you will be able to pick up very clearly, like based on, you know, what kind of things like hurt me. There are a couple of parts of this movie that I'm genuinely surprised I didn't turn off and walk away. It was very, very hard going to get through some parts of this movie. It does not hold back at all there's one yeah but so i'm on that side of the corn tell me what tell me where you are i mean i am not i don't disagree with anything in particular you're saying i just think that if you're going to make a movie that's a commentary on how someone is over sexualized i'm not sure that over sexualizing is actually the way to do that i mean if you're going to make i don't i don't think that andrew dominic and i'm not 100 percent familiar with his uh filmography uh, let's just punch him up here. Um, let's see. Oh, no, I like the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Um, he's done some episodes of Mindhunter. Like, he's done some good stuff that I enjoyed. So, Oh, and Chopper. Wow. I, I, just, I just don't think... What I couldn't help thinking throughout this movie is that maybe a better choice to make a film that's a commentary on someone who is trapped by and exploited by the male gaze would be to let, I don't know, just spitballing here, a woman direct it, (laughs) you know, like someone, someone who's not going to indulge in the things it's trying to comment on. And you're right in that she is, Marilyn is miserable throughout this film. She's raped no fewer than two times, like legitimately forcefully that's raped. Not even the, and that's not even... I, and those I aren't even... This about rape. Those are even the worst parts. No, they're really not. And I did, I, did, I did a quick bit of reading just through some like basic reactions to this film. And I think, you know, and I think my favorite review is by David Ehrlich logging it on his letterbox. And he, well, let me just pull it up because it's, too funny to misquote um but i guess the thing is that like i found the film to be despite that it's trying to be a commentary on exploitation and dehumanization i found it 
exploitative and dehumanizing and indulgent. And I at no point enjoyed what I was seeing. And I think if you're going to make a movie like this, that's going to make you complicit, you do have to, and sort of make that the point, you do have to make the audience not realize they're complicit and then show them. Whereas this one is just, I just watched. There's no reason for this movie to be NC-17, like at all. They could have dialed it back and made a better movie and allowed her some moments of happiness that would allow me to empathize with literally anyone else in the movie at all. I So counterpoint to that is that I don't know if she had any happy moments in her life, but this is a fictionalized version. So it is, it is clearly telling a story of this person and playing around with the facts. So I agree with you that they could have actually found a, a period in her life where she was balanced between the fame and the drugs. And I really love the recurring motif of Norma playing Marilyn and Marilyn being famous and almost disassociating when she sees herself on screen. There's one great moment where she she's trying to socialize with a group of women and say, oh, I'm, I'm nothing, I'm just a blonde. And they say, is it real? She says, no, talking about the hair. And it was kind of encapsulated the the entirety of her being is fake and the entirety of her misery is trying to deal with that at the same time deal with her daddy issues at the same time deal with the horrific like mother that she has to deal with as well and i and and they it would have been nice to balance that at some point to show her even towards the end a bit more balance. Oh no, that wouldn't have made sense, would it? But somewhere in the, you know what I mean? Somewhere in the, uh, somewhere in the middle, find a moment where it's not bleak because as much as I loved the technical aspects of watching this film and it felt like a stage play in, in many times. And I love the, the, uh, the cross. It's not a huge spoiler, but there's a wonderful sequence where she's kind of going from airplane to location to airplane to location. It doesn't cut. She walks out of the airplane through the people in the aisles and suddenly she's in the theater and mm-hmm. back to the airplane again. Just blew me away. I would I would love to watch this movie again, <laughs> but I'm never going to because it's three hours of misery. Yeah. And I mean, the uh, as a sort of companion to your point about... Um, her disassociating Norma from Norma Jean from Maryland. I think one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie is actually toward the end where she is miserable and she knows she needs to perform and she's, and she has her makeup artist who's trying to like quote conjure Marilyn mm. and she's sitting in front of a mirror mm. and she's like trying to like call Marilyn out. And then, then her reflection starts like smiling and laughing and is clearly Marilyn, but you can tell because she's not moving that like Norma Jean is mm. still sitting there. Like it's a very explicit um, mm. reflection of her but also like this is not a subtle movie like at all and that and that is probably the most subtle moment in it and we're talking about a movie where like she has pleasurable sex for the first time and her body and the side of the bed morph into a cgi waterfall mm-hmm. it's you know she's called into jfk's bedroom and there's an image of a rocket being erected on a TV screen that we're like, and then like, she's just mouth raped by JFK. You know, like this is not a, 
there's no part of this movie that I enjoyed watching at all. Even even as I was like, this is a beautifully shot movie that I do not like, is basically my reaction to the whole thing. Hmm, and, interesting. And just to come back to that that quick review that I think probably <laughs> encapsulates what I think. So David Ehrlich, who's movie critic famous, um, I'd always thought that Marilyn Monroe's biopics would be so much better if they cruelly devoted several different scenes to her doomed CGI fetuses, but I'm starting to think I might have been wrong. <laughs> <laughs> And that pretty much encapsulates this movie for me as well. It's definitely divisive as a movie. I think the whole thing hinges on, do you accept the uh, the movie showing us how terrible it is by involving us in how terrible it is? Like, do is that is that something that you are able to uh, not deal with, not accept, but is that going to work for you? And for me, the grubbiness of it, it, it worked and it was all down to the vulnerability of the way Anna de Armas played Marilyn. And it was very interesting to me how she did that because it wasn't just an impression all the way through. It's like there were different, definite shape, different shades of this character coming through. Again, it reminded me very much of how the stage performer might take on this role. Like it wasn't designed to be pure Norma Jean or pure Marilyn. And um, even even Adrian Brody playing Arthur Miller. I usually hate Adrian Brody. He was great in this. So yeah, um, I was going to ask actually because I know you don't like him as a. Performer. I hate Adrian Brody, but he he was uh, he was great. He didn't do his eyebrow thing at all, which is wonderful. Well, um, I mean, you need a middle aged guy, New York Jew, to play a middle aged New York Jew. He seems to be <laughs> yeah. a good, good choice. He's good, and he's got he's always got very good line delivery, and he's always very good at listening. He's a listener in, in scenes and. I think that comes through really, really well, and uh, I, I don't know. It's, I, I really, I'm glad I saw it in the same way I feel like when I see a terrible piece of theatre that shocks me to my core. It's that kind of feeling. I'm never going to watch it again. Anna de Armas should be recognised for her performance. The direction and the editing and the cinematography are exceptional, but. It's all going to completely depend on this is about this movie is is going this way and it's going to show you this thing through the eyes of the people, the terrible people that are doing it. And is that going to work for you? So I, I totally get why people are both sides of this. I personally, it I got it. it. It worked for me, but I can see why it wouldn't work for others. Yeah, I mean, I didn't not get it. I just didn't. It just didn't work. Yeah, I don't mean I get it. I don't mean get it by understand. I mean, just like accept it. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned like The Wolf of Wall Street as a comparison for a film that mm. makes you complicit and then shows you how that's a bad thing. Mm. But The Wolf of Wall Street does a really good job, I think, of making the main character seem really awesome. And then only like, the. I always found complaints about that movie really interesting because mm. people would talk about how it glorifies Jordan mm. Belfort and like <laughs> so glorious and like that's true but only if you don't watch the third act of the movie that yeah. makes it clear that he's a terrible yeah. person and punishes him and then when it lets him off by sending him to like white collar country club club jail like that is the point and that's yeah, the point exactly. where, you're, where you're supposed to be like oh right and that's why it's such a good comparison because they give you that middle act of happiness and then bring it shattering down so it's not yeah. just him being miserable yeah yeah but my point is that this this movie doesn't do that effectively at all mm -hmm. 
Like this movie doesn't do any of the stuff, any of the setup required for that payoff to work. And the ending is so devastating because she famously died of an overdose, miserable and alone, that if you're going to show that, like, I don't know, like, there's no way in which it was able to sneak in any enjoyment or empathy for anyone to, to make that payoff feel anything other than I mean, it's already miserable. The whole movie's already miserable. Like, of course, that's how she died. Like, mm. it's not tragic. It's almost happy because it's a release for her. Almost, except for that it's. Well, I mean, that's how they shoot. The whole... That's how they shoot it as well. They have that little sequence at the end where she finally smiles, like f- yeah. for real. It's probably the first she's... time. It's probably the first time that, not to spoil it, but like that's the first time that Norma Jean smiles in the whole yeah. movie, probably. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And like. It just doesn't work. Like it doesn't have. It doesn't do the work to make to make the ending work, and at least not for me. And I find it really interesting that, like, I'm not surprised that it's so divisive. I do find it very interesting, and also not surprising that very, very generally speaking, and I'm not trying to indict anyone here uh, for their taste in art, but I find it very interesting that of all the reviews that I have read, it's pretty well divided down gender lines. That like. A lot of dudes love it. Most women don't. Mm. And I find that very interesting. Mm. So, anyway. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the, the... Go on. I, mean, I don't know. I'm, the, I don't know about the gender lines with the critics thing. I think it's... I'm just trying to, like, draw a connection between feeling grubby. If you're exp- pushed through the male gaze men are like more likely maybe to feel grubby and women are more likely to feel well what the fuck we of course they do this like this is terrible i don't know i'm just spitballing but i don't know man i just i just didn't need to see a doctor's face from the inside of her birth canal i like (laughs) it's just three times like not only is it like i started before not only is it dehumanizing and exploitative it's also super indulgent with both of those things and i did not enjoy it that's fair how so, many stars are you giving this then? On the technical aspects alone, on the technical aspects and Ana de Armas's performance, I will give it two stars. Interesting. But I like I did not like it, and I do not recommend it. You interesting because of the technical aspects and Ana de Armas's performance, and the fact that I felt grubby as shit afterwards. Um, full stars for me. Yeah. This is just. Uh, there are issues with the, the way the story, and you're right, the script has moments of incredible moments of not being subtle at all, where she looks at the, the stars in the sky. Do you think they're lonely? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, we, we get the, we get the, the comparison. Thank you. But the, um, the, the, just, I was captivated with the way this movie was told, even by the bits that maybe wanted to just run. So it, it, four stars for me interesting well there you have it it is a divisive movie even among the awesome friday staff yes good i don't think the next one will be though and it's not a movie but i don't think our next thing will be that divisive at all no not at all because we are moving on now from that thing to this thing and this thing is the new star wars tv show andor uh three episodes of which are now available on disney plus and four episodes of which we were granted access to ahead of the release and i love this show oh my god it's so good 
It's so, <laughs> so good. Uh, it's full of great performances. It's full of amazing production design, which, I mean, it's saying that about oh, Star Wars so... is maybe the most obvious thing in the world. No, but like, no, no, you're it's, right. It's, it's real, though. It's real it's sets. Like it, it feels, <laughs> real it sense. feels, yeah, it feels real in a way that a lot of the other Star Wars stuff doesn't. And, mm-hmm. and for me, uh, it feels like the first Star Wars project since The Last Jedi that has a story to tell and a point to make as their first intention. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, for better or for worse, you know, fan service, which is what, you know, The Mandalorian, I, I like The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian is a fan service show, and The Book of Boba Fett is 100% fan service, and it's bad, and The Rise of Skywalker is a 100% toxic fan service, and it's terrible. This feels gritty and real, and like it has a real point and a real story that it wants to tell for maybe the first time since the last Jedi. And certainly it's, it's everything that I wanted rogue one to be mm-hmm. at this point. No, that's because I, because I, I quite famously am very mixed on. Rogue one. <laughs> <laughs> I famously am not, I'm looking over at the standee that I stole from your, that I uh, acquired from your store when you were finished with it. That is still in yep. the corner of my room advertising rogue one. Rogue one is one of my, like I think I've said before I would like to have babies with Rogue One. Like I, I it's the movie that I had in my head when I was a child because uh, I always like playing with the grunts instead of the Jedi's. Like imagining the the land war in Star Wars, and it's very very interesting. So of course I love Andor. Uh, I wasn't expecting to. Interestingly, I was ready for a fall, especially after Kenobi, which did not work for me at all. Um, I was, uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to temper my expectations these days so I don't get too disappointed. So I, I love it, but I'm also very interested that many people I know who didn't like Rogue One at all love Andor. Uh, and I think it's testament to it is telling a really interesting story. It's uh, Tony Gilroy saves the day as well, uh, again, because yep. he, he, there was an interview with him, the writer, last week, and he said the first step is to not love Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Is to not try and honor it like it's this great monarchy that you have to obey that is not not worry too much about the mythos, and you can really really tell because you haven't got people sprouting perfect sound bites at each other. Like people talk over each other. There's a, I mean, Fiona Shaw's an incredible actor anyway, but there's one amazing scene where Andor uh, Cassian comes back and he's living with her and we find out their connection later. And he's lying to her where he's been because he's, he's he's up to a spot of bother. And they are basically having a real conversation, like talking over each other. It's so un-Star Wars to see a real conversation. Mm-hmm. And everything's like that. Like, everything feels real. I've forgotten that Adria Arana was in it, <laughs> who I is one of my favorite working actress as well. So I was incredibly happy to see her and she's great in it. But then of course, I mean, we've talked, I'll let you talk about why Stellan Starsgard is so good. Like why yeah. he is just so good in everything. And it's interesting. I watched, uh, I'm going to finish my rambling by saying I watched Stellan Starsgard in Andor where he is this super like shady, dangerous, like mysterious person who's definitely got some links to the wrong people who you would not mess with. And then a few days later I came home and watched the end of Avengers 
where he is this bumbling kind of scientist who doesn't really know what's going on and he's in danger all the time. And he can just do everything. He can do both ends of that scale and make us completely believe in him. And he's brilliant in this as well. It's just a great spy story, right? The whole thing is... It's, and, he's, uh, and he's not even a spy yet. Like, it's... it's Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because at this point in Andor's story, you know, by the time we meet him in Rogue One, he's a, a you know, hardened rebel mm-hmm. spy. And in this one, he's a scrappy kid, you know, looking for his sister mm-hmm. who's uh, clearly got that extra spark. Like, there's the reason... It's made clear when Stellan Skarsgård shows up that, like, the reason he's there is for Andor, not for the thing that Andor is trying to sell him. But mm-hmm. not to spoil the, the first three episodes are out. I think it's a pretty fair game for us to talk mostly about them. I won't spoil too much of episode four, which is what I because well, I think that episode four is where I think Stellan Skarsgård mm. really starts to shine. Mm. Um, not that he's not good in episodes one, two, and three, but he's amazing in episode four. Mm-hmm. I I felt, um, but. Uh, this show feels like it's a drama set in Star Wars and not a Star Wars yeah. story first. And I don't know if you've listened to this podcast or if you know me in real <laughs> life, but that is what I've been asking for for years now. Yeah. You know, my feedback about Star Wars is just take an amazing story and make it Star Wars. That's, that's all I want. Mm-hmm. And forget about Skywalkers and Jedi and just, just, tell a crime story but make it star wars and that's what this is and it's amazing you know (laughs) and it gets into some really interesting territory contrasting the uh, you know the ruined industrial workplace planet that the first three episodes are set on versus coruscant the you you know the urban industrial city planet that is the capital Mm. of the empire there's some really interesting contrasts in the way those places are laid out and just the technological differences between those two places and the way people live. There's so much room for commentary in star Wars. And I feel like this might be the first show to like, to, you know, do that in a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I, yeah. And yeah, I mean, Diego Luna is wonderful in the part as this like scrappy, mm-hmm. angry, directionless fighter who needs to be, and, Skill and Skarsgård is a character who like knows that if he points uh, Luna in the right direction, if he can get him on board with the cause, he'll be a great a great fighter, a great asset. And they're so they're so wonderful. I can't. It's so hard to talk without going into detail. I keep like pulling myself back from like spoilers. Yeah, one thing we can talk about is the antagonist at this point. I think it's very very clever that they the Empire is not really part of the story yet because. The in the um, we learn. I know it's in the timeline. This happens later, but we we learn from Peter Cushing that they uh, they the Empire uses local law enforcement to keep the the screws turned. Like, and yeah. so there's a lot of pressure on the local law enforcement, the security, um, to do a good job and report back to the Empire. There's a lot of pressure on them. And so that pressure is then filtered through to a situation that that Andor finds himself in. And there's one deputy investigator of this security group who becomes this like key antagonist who is brilliantly played by uh, not Matt Bomer, um, Kyle Soller, <laughs> who, who has that Matt Bomer kind of... Oh, really want to do a good job, but completely out of my depth that he does that kind of innocent yeah. chin in the air 
the thing that Matt Bowman does brilliantly, this guy is also doing that brilliantly. And over the first three episodes, when it truly falls apart for him, he like it's so nice not to have someone chewing the scenery as the main antagonist and knowing where this is going as well, like where this is leading to, you can feel it, can't you? And I think it's the third episode that really brings that to a to a head when they try and actually go and arrest Andor. And the whole episode is just one brilliant sequence of that them trying to do that and the earth disappearing from under their feet. And uh, it's just... I, I almost kind of gave up like you like i almost gave up having a story like this in star wars again i kind of accepted it was always going to be like space wizards quoting fancy lines and callbacks and this is none of that yeah. and it's amazing <laughs> it's so amazing yeah and it's so ridiculously well cast I do want to talk a little bit about Stellan Skarsgård because he's so he's such a good actor anyway. And mm-hmm. you know if you've seen any of his appearances in the MCU or his turn in Dune last year, like dude's a chameleon oh, in the best God, way. Yeah. Um, and in this one in particular, I think really lays that bare. And not to spoil too much of Episode Four, but he shows up in Episodes One to Three as this like hardened to the point, like I'm here to recruit you. This is the reality of the situation, you know, join the cause or don't, but like, don't waste my time. Like, and then when we get to episode four and he returns home to Coruscant and we realize that he is living this life where he needs to be sort of a different persona and the scenes that have him transitioning from one persona to the other are just wonderful. Uh, And making clear like which version of himself is the real one are just wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you also just in terms of the Imperials like you have Anton Lesser as this uh, no-nonsense Imperial intelligence supervisor who <laughs> if you're familiar with Game of Thrones and his character there like it's that but even more ruthlessly efficient um, and uh, Denise and I'm going to mispronounce this because, but I think it's it's Goff Go, Go? I don't know um, she yeah. Uh, an Irish actress who, if you saw The Fall, you saw her in that. If you've seen the recent Under the Banner of Heaven, she was wonderful in that too. And she plays a new upstart Imperial intelligence officer. She's wonderful too, as this sort as, as the sort of like uh, highly ambitious well officer. I guess I don't lost my train of thought there. Um, as this highly ambitious officer who also is not. She's very clearly an Imperial, but she also doesn't quite fit in in intelligence because sure, her background is different. And it's just every character feels real. Every character feels like a real real person. And it's weird that I have to say that out loud about Star Star Wars, but that's just not how it usually is. In Star Wars, most characters are very generally of of an archetype. Mm -hmm. And it's very much a show, a series about space wizards intended for children and this mm-hmm. is the first, the first one in a long time that feels like it's meant for real people. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Because I wonder, I said this to you, I wonder if Disney are going to position like Rogue One universe, if you like, as the adult Star Wars. Because you're right, Star Wars is designed for children, and we forget about that. And 
the whole, I think their main Star Wars movies will and probably should continue to be about space wizards I mean, for children. But for the record, the, they definitely should. They right. shouldn't. They shouldn't be about Skywalkers anymore. But they should definitely yes. still be about space wizards and well, be intended for children. Hopefully, some uh, like old Republic stuff would be lovely. But the, I wonder if Rogue One's going to be there, like <laughs> the the um, the black. What's which major? Oh God, comic book publisher had a series of something black, like DC Black, that was their grown up stories. It was their one off grown up stories. They they all do. Um, oh, do the, they the, one that? the one you're thinking of, Marvel has Marvel Knights. Is, oh yeah, okay, that's exactly right. And yeah. I wonder if this is their Marvel Knights. If Rogue One is going to be their gritty non Jedi Star Wars like boots on the ground story, and I would be so happy if they uh, if they make a second season of this. I have no idea. So it's uh, it's it. it's uh, it has a two season twenty four episode order, and that's uh, apparently oh. it's a two and two and done. I guess. Okay. Um, but, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, just to, just to highlight what we're talking about, Genevieve O'Reilly, who I think was originally cast as Mon Mothma in the prequel trilogy because she looked like the woman who played Mon Mothma in the original trilogy. <laughs> um, so she's appeared a number of times. She appeared in Rogue One as the character. Mon Mothma has about 10, 8 minutes of screen time in episode four mm-hmm. and she is more of a character in those eight minutes than she has been in every other appearance she's made including the clone wars animated show which i like mm-hmm. <laughs> she's a more interesting compelling character in this yeah. in this one episode of television than she has ever been before and you're right it's because she feels real everyone just is written like a real person yeah. <laughs> and it's weird because like i i sort of get Tony Gilroy saying the first step is to not love Star Wars, but it's definitely possible to love Star Wars and make a good Star Wars story because that's mm-hmm. what Ryan Johnson did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the, the point is that you can't hold it as some immutable canon, right? The The point is that well, you need to be able to tell a story within the universe, not use the, not just use the universe. You know, I'm, the I'm putting that really we, poorly. Ryan Johnson, made it very very clear how he feels through here through um one of his characters in the last jedi and i think about this a lot when i think about star wars these days and that's carla ren saying um oh god i'm gonna get the quote wrong now um let go of the past destroy it if you have to like the whole point his whole point is don't be beholden to what's come in the past and the whole point of the last jedi was that as well yeah and how amazing would it have been if we'd just not if Disney hadn't fucking blinked and gone backwards. But I think um, I think all the time how you know I'm pretty online and so I see a lot of memes and I still see a lot of Yoda, you know, do or do not, there is no try. And I for the life of me can't fathom how failure the best teacher is isn't the most famous Yoda quote in existence at this point. Like <laughs> that movie is so fucking good yeah anyway andor is great and i feel like i've just been rambling this whole time but andor is great and you should definitely watch it if the first four episodes are any indication then this is going to be one of the best star wars things to date and i hope that the first four episodes are an indication it's wonderfully written it's beautifully produced it's ridiculously well cast and acted and and i I, 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 I love it after the, I, I 
the um, Kenobi and Book of Boba Fett and uh, Mandalorian use a stage, a screen stage system called called the oh, come on, Matt. The, what's it called? Oh, I don't actually. The, I remember the, what it's called. The wraparound but... screen. It's got a proper name that they capitalize because it's important. It's called like the structure or the sequence or something. Yeah, and yeah. It, the, they it's, yeah, they act in front of yeah. They act in front of digital digitized backgrounds, which really limits the camera work and the depth of field and everything. Andor is shot on location with real sets in Pinewood, and you like when the original series was shot in the same like studio complex with real sets and real people, and it is just so much better for it because then yeah. when it cuts the CGI of them, like uh, a couple of people on a speeder. And it's clearly CG. It stands out a fucking mile because everything else has been dusty, real streets made by incredibly talented artists to look like this um, this workers town, and everything just looks brilliant. It it looks so solid. It's wonderful. Yeah, it also provides wonderful contrast. So there's a Interestingly, one of my favorite shots in the whole first four episodes is a scene of Mon Mothma just in a car and she's being, quote, driven or flown or whatever through the streets of Coruscant towards her home. And she's having this, you know, contemplative moment. But the CGI in those scenes on Coruscant in particular is actually so well done that it still feels real. Mm-hmm. Like it stands out in when there's a scene of CGI in one of the real sets in one of the like in the worker town or there's a episode four largely takes place basically on a mountain and in a forest. Um, and when there's CGI in those scenes, it sticks out like a, a bit like a sore thumb, but not in a deal breaking way. Um, mm. But for somehow in the scenes where it's mostly CG backgrounds, it all works. Like it all, it's a lot mm. more seamless and I, I don't know enough about the production to guess at this, but I, I wonder if it's because it's green screens and CG and not yeah. projected stuff, right? Yeah. Whatever they're doing, I hope they keep doing it because this is probably the best looking show that they've produced so far for Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 we quite like it then. <laughs> yeah. I mean we could go on, but like basically I'm just fan I feel like I haven't had a cohesive point, but it's a great show. And you should definitely be watching it. The, the I, and it's honestly, case. it's interestingly too, this is actually maybe the first Star Wars thing I would say that is worth recommending to people who don't like Star Wars. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, because very much like, there's definitely people you'd be like, yeah, you know, The Last Jedi was a good movie or you know, The Force Awakens, see if you like Star Wars again. This is a good show first and a oh, Star a Wars thing yeah. second. And... Mm-hmm. I, it's it's a it's a wonderful, you know, spy action drama first, and uh, I I wonder I have no hope that they will, but I wonder if this might be the show that really gets a lot of new people, new adult fans on board. I hope so, and that's the reason we're ram- kind of rambling as well because for us it's a course correction for everything that we've become disillusioned with with modern star wars for a couple of years now and it's not it's not any one thing that it does better it's everything that it does better and um that's why i'm so like over the top about how i feel about it because it's not just great star wars it's a great story shot brilliantly well my favorite shot of the first four episodes 
is actually really, really near the f- beginning of the first episode. And I texted you some choice words when this happened because he's he's looking. It opens in a brothel, which is a choice with him looking for his. Um, if you if you ever want to see a Star Wars brothel, like with them trying to to strike up brothel deals, then you're going to see it in Andor. And then when he's leaving, these two uh, people that he um, he's pissed off come after him but the camera is on his face it doesn't there's no fancy cuts there's no action editing it stops and for the next minute it's the entire row of dialogue it and he's the only one in focus and it only cuts away a minute or so later when he tries to stop being mugged and you don't actually see you only hear voices of the other two it is so brilliantly directed and i wasn't ready for that i wasn't ready for like dynamic creative direction in a star wars show and so it really set the tone for me and and thankfully the first four episodes have only um continued and improved on that tone as well it's just amazing yeah it's almost like there's a real filmmaker behind it and not to yeah, dis- right not Absolutely. to not to disparage the people who make the other shows but like this has a much clearer uh voice behind it i think yes so yes and yeah. So Andor episodes one to four, how many stars for you, good sir? Oh, are we starring this? Like, do we? <laughs> I mean, we star everything. Uh, it's, That's a, we roll. it's a it's a five star. I mean, it's so good. It's so good. It's five stars. Clearly, in every yeah. dimension for me. I uh, I am going to say the same. That that the first five episodes. I I absolutely adored the first four episodes of this show, mm-hmm. and I those four episodes together. Uh, make it a five or five stars and i mm-hmm. i'm legitimately hopeful that it won't let me down and that's uh that's the first time i've said that uh, about a star wars show uh maybe since there's been star wars shows on disney plus yeah absolutely oh it's head and shoulders about all, all above all the other star wars shows you can't there's no comparison between the others even mandalorian when it's good uh, and I think the best Mandalorian was the episode that was meant to be Boba Fett. I think that was the best episode of Mandalorian. It's nowhere near as good as Andor. <laughs> yeah. It's just so much better. Yeah, because it doesn't feel like... Even those shows at their best still feel like fan service, and this doesn't. Yeah, yeah, totally. How many episodes in this um, season do you know? Uh, as far as I remember, it's got a two-episode order of... Or, sorry, a two-season order of 12 episodes each. Oh, good. So, and that, oh, that's good. because these episodes are only, you know, they're 35, 30 to 40 minutes, not an hour or so. Mm-hmm. It's not actually too yeah. big of an ask. And, yeah, much better. And uh, it's interesting because I would say that as much as I would generally prefer my shows to be hour long shows, oh. um, <laughs> they, uh, I, I rather like that the episode lengths in these ones vary a little bit. And it seems like they're taking the time they need to tell the story each episode needs to yeah. tell. And I also very much appreciate that. There's no sense in making a 30-minute show just because you have 30 minutes. Your cat agrees. Yeah, my I, cat is I, at the I'm, door trying to get in. <laughs> I'm on the other side. Like I'm trying to work through For All Mankind at the moment, which is amazing. But the each of those episodes are over an hour. And I'm just finding time to watch an hour of anything. Is, well, the, uh, is the interesting thing about so. For All Mankind as a comparison is that they actually do the same thing. It's just that their episodes are long. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they range yeah. in time based on what they need to do. And, and, but the episodes are all at least an hour. 
So it's it's yeah. the same idea, just longer. Yeah. But if you're not watching For All Mankind, uh, that is actually, interestingly, stealthily, one of the best shows on TV right now. So there's another it's... bonus recommendation for you. I'm only towards the end of season one, so you've, you're not two whole seasons ahead of me, and it, it's yeah. really good. It's really, really, really good once it gets going. So, um, yeah, we we've never really talked about that. We maybe will. Well, you only just started watching it, so yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. If we um, only talked about the things I watched, then we'd have a very short podcast. Wouldn't we? Well, um, and also like the time to talk about for all mankind would have been very recently because season three just ended a few weeks ago, uh, and mm. you hadn't watched it whereas i had so and season three continues to be good quick quick thumbs up of every season of that show is good okay uh and and every season has a big time jump between it between them and the time jumps make things if it wasn't so good there'd be a lot of a lot of easy things to nitpick but it is so good so it doesn't matter Uh, brilliant yeah so what are you watching what's coming up next week what have you got on your watch list well, interestingly, we have both been accredited to attend the Vancouver International Film Festival. So I don't want to make too many announcements about what we're going to be covering. But for the next two episodes, at least, we will be covering uh, films from the festival. Two, I think three of which we've already lined up. I just don't know what order we're going to be watching them in. So I don't want to jinx it. Um, we also, I technically am accredited for Fantastic Fest out of Austin, which is having a virtual festival at the same time, in person, as of the time we're recording and you're listening to this, but it'll be virtual towards the end of the month. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's some, some overlap there. So some of our coverage will be, uh, for both. Um, we also, I don't know if you watched it, but we also, uh, just as like a one-off, uh, we also got access to Netflix's new, uh, Mm. You know, older person action movie starring Alice and Janney this this week called Lou, which mm. came out, I think, uh, as of when you're listening to this day before yesterday. Uh, and it's fine. It's totally fine. And uh, you oh, can do worse already, than watching it. I watched it when, when we got it. you find time to watch all this stuff? That only came out. We only got that a few days ago. I don't, I don't have children. I don't have children. <laughs> or sleep. <laughs> you have no need. You don't sleep either. Yeah. I, um, um, I want to watch. I found out that. One of uh, my favorite Korean directors, Young Sang Ho, who did Train to Busan and Peninsula, has made a TV show on Netflix called Hellbound, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is about uh, angels dragging people to hell and people dealing with that. And I found out about that today. So I'm going to um, watch that very, very soon. That's on my list, as well as our incoming film festival stuff. Nice one. Well, uh, we're going to cut it off there. Thank you so much for listening. One more time, you should probably watch Blonde just to see what side of the debate you come down mm, on. Uh, and Andor, you should definitely watch. Uh, and actually, Disney Plus is on a roll with both Andor and She-Hulk right now, I feel. So Disney Plus, worth the money, I think, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate each and every one of you. We record this here in Vancouver on the unceded lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish peoples. If you like what you've heard, please take the time to give us a review on your podcasting platform of choice. Like, subscribe, or if you'd like to support us more directly, we do have a Patreon and a Ko-fi, and you can find those both linked in the show notes. Do check out awesomefriday.ca for more of our content and follow us on the socials. I am at AF. He is at Temporary Pen, and we are at Awesome Friday CA. What am I forgetting? Am I forgetting anything? Just that we thank you and we love you. We do love you, each and every one of you, and thank you for joining us on this 
awesome Friday.